This is Being Modern, Being Human, a podcast about contemporary society. Today I'm joined by Joy Santana, a published author and the chairman of the CDO Power Circle, an association that helps organizations develop diversity leaders. I'm very excited about today's topic, and we'll talk about how to produce equity and inclusion in the constantly evolving age of artificial intelligence, new workforce, and multiverses. Hi, Joe. Very well, welcome to you. Thank you, Ian. It's a pleasure being here with you today. Thank you for being my guest. Let's start from the definition of diversity and inclusion. What is it? Because it's been a buzzword in the recent years. What do we really mean by that? You know, what's interesting about the two words, diversity and inclusion, is that if you look them up in a dictionary, there's a very simple explanation. Diversity is about variety. Inclusion is about making sure that entire variety is able to work effectively together, that it's able to effectively use all of its talents when we're talking about a variety of people. Now, where it gets complicated is that organizations and others have taken that word and they've shaped it in so many different ways. I always think it's funny when people get together and they say, let's define what inclusion or diversity means for us. It's almost like saying, let me see, let me define what a glass is for me as opposed to what it is as a general definition. But generally, diversity is about the variety of people that have different social characteristics that make up the workforce in an organization. So it could be their gender, their orientation, their ethnicity, their race, their religion, et cetera, all those different things that make us similar and different from each other. And then inclusion is more about how do we bring together all these pieces and make sure that they are fully utilized and leveraged. And we're not talking about just how people feel in terms of do they feel included or do they feel excluded, but are they really included or excluded? Because the truth is that you might think that you're included, but maybe you're not. Maybe you don't actually know how excluded you are, let's say, compared to a colleague who has more access to resources and to senior leadership. So I think that's an important component because a lot of the measurement is around how do people feel? Do they feel included or not? But I think it goes beyond that. It's more about are they truly being fully utilized and given all the resources necessary as everyone else to be successful and contribute to the company? You made an interesting point about feeling and really being included. How do you distinguish between the two and how do I know that I'm really included or excluded? That's a great question. One of the ways that organizations tend to measure inclusion is they send surveys around and they say, Joe, do you feel included? Ina, do you feel included? And the only thing that you can do is you can go by your subjective impression of, am I participating as fully as the people I see around me? One of the ways that you can scientifically look at whether you're included or not is by doing an organizational network analysis. So for those who are not familiar with what that is, that essentially is a look at the relationships that exist in the organization informally. So rather than just the relationships that exist in terms of who reports to whom and who is a colleague within a particular department, this looks at who talks to whom, who relates to whom, who works with whom informally to get different types of information. Like, for example, do I go to you, Ina, when I need advice, or do you go to me or to someone else? 
And when you collect that kind of information and you look at it as an x-ray of the relationships in the organization, you very quickly realize that there are some people that are clustered very tightly with each other, meaning that they are part of and they are connected to various people in the organization and maybe even the leadership of the organization. And then there are other people that seem to be sitting way out there by themselves. Maybe they're thinly connected only to their immediate manager and one or two colleagues, but they're not as connected or included in terms of access to resources and access to opportunities to actually develop and utilize their talents. So a person like that might perceptually say, yeah, I think I'm included. But if they were to look at this network analysis map, they'd realize, oh God, I'm sitting all the way out here and everybody else is in there in that cluster and I'm not part of it. And that becomes especially important today when you have some people that are working remotely who may only be talking to colleagues over technology like the one we're using today, and they may feel they're included and may not know how excluded they really are. So how do you reveal this kind of informal uh, connections and relationships? Is it field research? Yeah, there is a very well-developed approach for doing that called organizational network analysis, which actually creates a map. And if you've ever seen one of these maps, it looks like a scattergram with a lot of dots. So each person is represented by a dot. And if you see a dot connected to a lot of other dots, that person is connected and well integrated into the organization. If you see a dot that's sitting out there and maybe only one line or two lines going to it or from it, it actually is sitting somewhat more in the margins. And a lot of organizations already have the means to do that through their people analytics groups. They collect all kinds of data. In fact, organizations tend to collect that kind of data to determine how some work groups are effectively partnering with each other around certain projects. So all that people have to do who are interested in seeing whether the diversity in their organization is well integrated is just to use the tools that they already have and then to look at it through another lens. Are the women as included as the men in these clusters? Are people who belong to certain ethnicities sitting on the margins or are they also within those clusters? Are they connected to the power sources in the organization? Or are they residing only here in the bottom with very few or no connections to the top? So the tools are there. It's called organizational network analysis. It's just a matter of looking at it through a different lens and utilizing it. Actually, what benefits do uh, equity and inclusion bring to organizations? Why should they follow this path? I think any kind of organization, whether a nonprofit or a for-profit organization, has a great deal of value to get out of making sure that they are getting not only the full value, but the full engagement of every person that's on their team. A couple of years ago, before I went into the DEI space, one of the things that I did was I ran an outsourcing organization. And that's actually how I became interested in this topic and got introduced into it. So in IT outsourcing, you literally take over the IT functions of another organization. You provide them better service at a lower cost, and you take over the employees that they have in that group. But one of the things that you need to provide is your own managers. So you need to have managers 
that understand your processes and policies and practices in order to bring all that value to your client. So every time you get a new client, you take over the employees, but you have to bring in and set up your own management team. So your ability to take on more business and to grow is predicated directly on your ability to bring in those managers. Now, I had a particular situation where I was watching my bench of managers shrink, and I was wondering why, and then I found out the reason why was really very simple. We were hiring more women in the organization, and generally, when people came into the organization, they came in either through the administrative side, which is help desk, logistics, or they came in through the technical side, which is either software engineer or hardware engineer. Traditionally, the men came in through this side, through the technical, hardware, and software engineers. And we had a really well-developed program that trained promising engineers on the bigger picture of what was going on in logistics and the help desk so as to round them out and get them ready to take on bigger responsibility. We did not have a corresponding program for people that came through the administrative track to learn what was going on the engineering side, to round them out. So as we were hiring more and more women who were coming in through this administrative track and less men were coming into the organization that were coming in through that technical track, we did not have the mechanism to develop the talented women into leaders like we did for the men. There was no mechanism to train them on the other side. So if you came in as a man and you were technical, you had a big career ladder. If you came in as a woman, No matter how smart you were, you had a short career ladder, maybe tops, you could be a supervisor in the help desk or one of those areas. So we basically just developed another piece of the program so as to give women an opportunity who are coming in through that other administrative side to ride along and watch what some of the technicians and some of the hardware people did and the software people did so they could learn the larger picture. They didn't have to become technicians. They just had to understand that larger picture. And as a result of that, a lot of those women started becoming more able to take on larger and larger responsibilities. That brings us to your question. What's the value to the company? The value to my organization was a 17% increase in revenue. That first year, flat out, once we raised the ladder so that the women could rise also, Our bench became full of leaders. We were able to process more business, and that represented a 17% jump in revenue. And that was one of the reasons why when later on, when the organization wanted to build a larger practice in the DEI space, they actually asked me to lead it. And I was so passionate about it. I left what I was doing and went into this role. And I worked with a number of leaders, basically just doing the same thing that I did for myself, identifying Where are the gaps in your ability to be productive as a result of not having a good DEI strategy that either enables women or others to rise to the top? Because the minute that you release all that pent-up potential, the whole company benefits. That's impressive. Since we're talking about gender equality and gender equity, I would like to also touch upon age How does that work in organizations? What benefits do different generations bring to organizations and how do you balance them in the modern environment? I think that one of the things that we sometimes miss out on in organizations when it comes to age is that 
we tend to be, and this is true not only of age, it's true of a lot of things. We tend to sometimes have policies and practices that are rooted in the conditions that existed maybe in the early 1900s and in the 1950s. And so the idea is that youth means vigor and strength and you can get all this stuff done. Older people, they're going to get slower. Maybe they can't do as much. It's time to retire. We're not working in an environment where most of us are lifting heavy boulders or trying to do things that require that much physical vigor. What I literally see is that when you have a nice mix of people coming into the organization, you get the benefit of fresh eyes that are looking at the world through some of the things they just learned in school, which are new technologies, new techniques, full of that enthusiasm and vigor that tends to be associated with youth. But also you have that dimension of experience and you have that dimension of thoughtfulness which comes to people as they go through processes in life. So I don't favor one or the other and say better if all your employees are really wise people that have tons of experience, because that might give you tunnel vision and think that you have answers when there might be new things coming up that you should consider. But on the other end, to say, we just want people to come in who only have fresh ideas and that do not have as much experience. I think that's a loss for an organization as well. I think the more you balance the different capabilities that people bring to the table, whether it's even beyond age, if you think about like even in leadership, leadership tends to be weighed very heavily toward very masculine type qualities. But there's a lot to be said for bringing feminine elements of thought and perspectives also into leadership. I don't think it's a good idea to try to say, to be a leader, this is our structure and you have to be like this. And literally what you're generally describing is a man. And then if you're a woman and you want to be a leader, you almost have to change some of your behavior to fit into that mold. I think we lose something organizationally when we do that. I think that we're not really tapping into what all these people bring, whether it's young people, older people in between, females, males, people who've lived in different parts of the world. I think that all of that brings benefit and that we are better off basically leveraging all of that and bringing it together and utilizing it to get real advantage than trying to standardize people, as it were, and or to say we prefer this particular group over that particular group. That's true. We often think in stereotypes and it takes an effort to start thinking differently because That's what our modern age requires, actually. And that brings me to one of the most interesting questions of today's conversation about the emergence of new technologies and AI. How do they influence the workforce and the workplace? And how can we deal with it? And what should we do? One of the things about AI that I think makes it a very powerful force is One, it's growing very fast. There's a big demand for it because let's face it, let's say in recruiting, a human recruiter can probably look at maybe six or eight resumes in a minute. An AI can probably scan 600 of them in a second, right? So there's that speed cost that's very attractive to companies. You're going to lower costs and so forth. 
The other thing about AI that I think makes it something we really need to pay attention to is I did a survey not long ago, about a year or so ago, of HR people. And one of the questions I asked in the survey was, do you think that AI will make organizations less biased and more fair? Do you think it depends on how it's deployed? Or do you think it'll make matters worse? And about 67% of the HR leaders that answered this said, oh, it'll make it less biased and more fair. And the reason why is because they think it's a machine. It doesn't have feelings. It doesn't have any kind of preferences and so forth. And nothing could be further from the truth. I've interviewed tons of people who are artificial intelligence scientists, and they tell me all the time, these things are full of biases. And these biases come from a number of things. Sometimes they come from the people who construct them. Sometimes they come from the data that's used. Amazon had an AI that they were using to do resume scanning, and they had to turn it off because what they found was that it was discriminating against women. When we saw a woman's resume, it basically deemed it not to be the resume of someone who would be successful in the company. And they tried really hard. They tried to eliminate names. They tried to mask different data. But the AI was very clever at figuring out when it had a resume that belonged to a female. And the original reason why it was so anti-female was because they use historical data to train it. And when it was looking at the historical data, it was actually told, hey, this is the information of people that were successful. This is the information of people who didn't rise through the ranks as quickly. And of course, back then, the bulk of the leaders were men. And the AI looked at it, it's not because it has feelings, but it looked at it and then assumed, oh, that's a feature. So I'm going to select for men instead of women because the men do better. So eventually they had to turn the whole thing off. But I think that as AI, because of its attractiveness to companies, because of costs and so forth, as it becomes more ubiquitous and it's used for things like resume scanning, there are some companies that are even using it to do initial interviews. So you're actually talking to a chat bot. And that chatbot is measuring different things. For example, even the coloration of your skin to determine your passion and your sincerity. Unfortunately, if you happen to be of African descent, your skin is very dark. It gives dubious responses about your sincerity and passion. These things are becoming more and more ubiquitous in terms of how they're used by organizations. And at the same time, they're also fraught with biases and they can come to conclusions that are based on the way that people used to think 50 or 60 years ago and not today. And one of the things that I think that organizations should really be aware of when they're buying these tools is that you, the organization, are responsible for what happens. So what I mean by that is if some very charming AI salesman comes and sells you a tool for scanning resumes or interviewing people, and you later on get sued by a group of women who say that they were discriminated against, you can't point to the vendor and say, their AI did it. You, as the organization that's running the tool, you become responsible. So caveat emptor, because once you buy it, you own the results. What's your advice to organizations that want to integrate AI tools into their selection process or some other processes? Should there be some kind of ethical commission or maybe they should see what data sets were used for training artificial intelligence? What do you think? I think 
you want as much transparency as possible as to how this tool was put together, how it works, and so forth. But the other thing that I think is really important to emphasize, because when people hear this sometimes, especially people who are in HR or in DEI or other roles like that, they think, oh my, do I have to become an AI specialist? Do I need to become a computer scientist? And the answer is no. We all use tools that we do not fully understand. I have the lights turned on. I don't know how electricity runs through all the coils, but I know that switch turns it on and off. There's an old saying that says that maybe you can't control the wind, but you can adjust the sails, right? And that way you can control the direction of the boat. So how do you control the direction of the AI boat if you're not a scientist, artificial intelligence scientist? And the answer is you do, as you alluded to before, you put together ethics committees, you monitor what the AI is doing. Over time, you sample and you ask yourself, hey, does this look balanced to me? And you bring people into that committee to be part of that committee that monitors this that come from different parts of the organization. Your legal department should be involved, your HR department, your DEI people should be involved as well. You should be on the lookout for how is this thing performing on a regular basis. You should monitor it the way you would monitor any other person who's working or thing that's working in your company and not just let it go and trust it completely to do the right thing. And periodically, you should look at it. And if you have very clear guidelines of how you want your organization to perform in terms of its hiring practices, its promotional practices, its practices relative to your clients, how do you want to show up? How do you want your brand to come across? How do you want to operate? If you've got those clearly delineated for yourself, Then you could look at what the AI is doing and say, is that representative of who we are? Like, it looks like it's hiring a lot of men and not a lot of women or a lot of people of color. What is it doing? Why does it do that? Then you go back to the vendor and you say, hey, you know what? I want this looked at as to why the system that you created is working this way. Or if it's done in-house, you go back to your developers and you say, explain that. What is going on there? And through that method, even though you're not the artificial intelligence scientist or the tech specialist, you can manage it. You can manage it just like you manage a lot of other things in the organization without having to be an expert in any of them. And so the organization is already implementing some diversity and inclusion policies, but after a while uh, in any process, there is stagnation and you find yourself in a bubble and you don't uh, fully, you, you cannot fully evaluate the picture. It's just a confirmation bias uh, because we are all biased to some point. So how to adjust this process and to check on uh, your progress in terms of diversity and inclusion, what would you advise? Yeah, my advice is there's an old Stephen Covey saying, start with the end in mind. Be very clear about what it is that you're trying to achieve. And I think like, for example, in the case of diversity itself, it's pretty straightforward. You can look at your organization, you could see how it's set up, how it's distributed, and you can look at the world around you and you can see what's available out there and you can match the two and say, we should have maybe more women in leadership. It's clear that there are more available women in leadership. How come we don't have any or we have 
so few. And you could do that with any particular group. In terms of inclusion, I think that one of the things you can look at is, as I mentioned before, something like an organizational network analysis map. You could look at it and you could say, what does my organization look like today? And so I can see, hey, those people that are out there are not really as connected or as included. And my goal is to make sure that everyone in the organization is more closely connected and included so that we're more inclusive and we function better. And then you can turn around and you can say, let's try, let's say, a training or let's try a mentoring program. And then down the road, you could take another snapshot and you can look at it and you can say, has anything changed, right? If nothing has changed, then maybe you need a different intervention. Or if something has changed in one part of your organization and nothing has changed in another, maybe you need to look at more carefully what's going on in that part of your organization and why it's so resistant to change despite the intervention that you're taking. In the case of equity, you can look at the rules and regulations of the organization. Are they fairly helping everyone? Like, for example, if you are a woman and let's say you have childcare responsibilities and you're in sales and you have a colleague who is a man who, let's say, doesn't have childcare responsibilities, although there are more men that have those today than in the past, but let's say he doesn't have them. If he takes a client out on, let's say, a Saturday, he takes a client out in order to close a sale, and he has a couple of martinis, and he can go back and reimburse that, but the woman needs to have a babysitter because she has a toddler, and she can't reimburse that. Why is that? Well, isn't that part of the cost of being able to go out and close that sale? So you can look and say, what policies do we have and how do we make them more equitable? And after you make some progress and you measure everything the same way you would anything in your organization, you start out with, where are we? Where do we want to be? And we have a hypothesis of how we're going to get there. If And I'm going to try an intervention. If it doesn't work, then I need to do something else. And then once you do get to where you want to go in an area, then the question is, okay, we were here. Now we're over here. Are we comfortable there? Or do we want to move out even further and make more progress? And then you repeat that process again. But you need to actually have very concrete ideas of what you want to do in your organization, and you need to measure it in concrete ways. If all you're measuring is, hey, Ina, do you feel included or are you happy here and so forth? then you're not really measuring substance. You're measuring experiences that people are having that really could be off the mark sometimes. Not that's not important. You want to measure that, but you don't want to measure only that. Could you maybe name some examples from your career that could be inspirational for others to develop their DEI policies? Yeah, one of the one of the organizations that I talk a lot about is this healthcare system that's out in Wisconsin. I was just there not long ago. And they've got a well-developed process and they've got different policies and so forth, but I think what really makes their process very well developed and they don't mind if I mention their name, it's Freighter Health, right? That one of the things that makes their process so well executed is that it's integrated into the organization. So they've got these resource groups like the women's groups and so forth. They've got these groups in the organization and each of those groups has leaders. They have an executive sponsor. That executive sponsor reports up to the CEO. 
that executive sponsor also is their representative in external organizations that are focused on that particular dimension. For example, if it's a women's group, that person is the executive sponsor of the women's group. They also sit on outside boards representing the company for things and topics that are of interest to women. They also sit on the inside of any kind of other committees or things that are going on in that area. So it provides this integration with the external world, the internal world, and the CEO. The CEO herself is super involved in all of these events. She actually sits down and listens to leaders of these various groups to find out what's going on in their communities, how that reflects what's going on in the patient world, how that reflects what's going on in the inside world. And I think that's the secret sauce. The individual policies could vary depending on who the organization is and are they for-profit, not-profit, are they operating in a space that has to do with products or services? All those things can vary. But I think making sure it's integrated into the DNA of your organization is the secret sauce that makes companies like that successful. That's a great example. And uh, my last question is related to the title of my podcast, Being Modern, Being Human. I ask it all my guests. So what does it mean to you, being modern and being human? To me, being modern and being human is about really evolving in this period of time where we're becoming more technologically connected and at the same time, a little less personally connected. So I think that the being human part is making sure that we don't lose that relational piece. I think some organizations do a good job of maintaining that, especially when they're working with remote workers, by having opportunities where they call in, not just to have a meeting to talk about work, but to find out, hey, Ina, how are you doing? What's going on in your world? And establishing and maintaining that relationship with people. I think that's important because we're not machine parts. We are people. And we have needs, social needs and other needs that organizations need to meet, especially if they want to keep us engaged. And to me, the modern world is all about change. We are accelerating now at a speed that is unprecedented. One of the quotes that I use is that in 1919, when the Spanish flu first showed up, it took three decades to come up with a vaccine. When COVID-19 showed up, it took only 300 days to come up with a vaccine. And now they're targeting coming up with a vaccine within even a shorter period of time than that, within, within an incredibly short period of time. And so the world today is changing faster and faster. So I think that we need to start looking further out at what's coming at us and preparing for it much faster, which is why I talk in my books and everything about the need for leaders and others to be more futuristic focused than they have been in the past. So I think that having that more futuristic focus combined with also making sure that we are connecting with people and still valuing and supporting that human side of us, I think is really important because the world, AI is expanding, all these other things, tools to communicate. But when you come right down to it, this brain and the way we operate and feel is still the same machinery that was here a couple of million years ago. <laughs> That's true. So, yeah, it's important to look into the future, but still be present in this moment and connect with people and the world around us. 
Thank you very much for being my guest. It's been my pleasure being here with you today. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening. If you enjoy this podcast, make sure to subscribe to Being Modern, Being Human on one of your favorite platforms, not to miss new episodes. In the meantime, stay safe and have a good time. <laughs>